This week, actually, we're starting something new. Um, not new, new, but we're done with our worship series. This is called our All Saints series. November 1st is uh, historically All Saints Day. Um, Halloween is All Hallowed's Eve is where it got its name. Um, so November 1st was All Hallowed's Day, and November 31st was, or October 31st was All Hallowed's Eve. And so what we do just for fun is through all November, we kind of stretch out All Saints Day, and we spend the month um, picking four uh, kind of saints throughout history, four um, kind of Christians or believers, people of God who have walked before us and kind of paved the road for us, and we just dig in one one per week and talk about them. So that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks is uh, is lean into some of the people who have done this before us. So let's get started. History has preserved two history has preserved two magnificent silver cups from the boggy marshes of Ireland. We have any Irish people here? Say hey. Hey, we got a few. All right. One is called the Gundestrup Cauldron. This is a very, very old um, cup. It comes from about two centuries before Jesus. And it was a time when the Irish worshipped uh, many pagan gods. And it's actually uh, kind of a historical marvel. It's uh, gorgeously um, wrought for the era it came from. But there's one panel that shows what they call the chef god or the cook god, dunking humans in a, a vat of boiling oil is what historians believe is happening there. Yeah, they're, they're kind of squirming and, and fighting, but it's a human sacrifice to appease the gods. And then there's a second cup that's very famous in Ireland, and this is called the, the Ardog, and I think there's some Irish thing that's supposed to happen in my throat there that I don't know how to do, but the Ardog chalice... <laughs> And this comes from about seven or eight centuries after Christ. And actually, the, these two chalices are pretty famous in Ireland. And the, anybody seen Indiana Jones in the last, the last Crusade? They're kind of pulling off this concept in that final scene where they have all the chalices to choose from and the Nazi chooses the really you know, ornate one and turns into like a skeleton and dust that gave me nightmares. And then the, you know, Indy picks the, the really plain looking one. They're kind of playing on this concept, um, this famous Irish um, idea in there. And they kind of exaggerate it a little bit, but this is what they're looking at. In similar fashion to that scene, anybody who takes communion from the, whatever it is, the Ardog chalice, um, and it's, it's beautifully made, it's still a marvel for its time, but is, does so in full recognition that the other chalice exists and is usually there. And it's this kind of living symbol that we do not serve those gods anymore. It's this comparative um, relationship between the grace of God, the simple grace of God, and this demanding, you know, <laughs> these gods who demanded human sacrifice. And so anybody who drinks from this cup knows kind of experimentally, like they can see that something dramatic has changed. We serve a God who chooses to give, not take. And so this is a cup of grace, is what they call it in Ireland. This is a cup of grace. And this morning we're going to talk about grace. And last week, i got to give another disclaimer. Last week I gave a disclaimer before I even talked about silent solitude and stillness, that hi, my name is Chris and I'm a hypocrite, that we were talking about calming ourselves down and being still and embracing Sabbath, and I am terrible at that, and so I just had to own it up front that I'm an absolute hypocrite, and I have to preach things that I don't do well um, as part of my job. And uh, 
And this week, I have to give another disclaimer. Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a crybaby. So I do not talk, if I don't talk about grace without getting choked up, it just does not happen. So if seeing a grown man cry makes you uncomfortable, I think we're a Pokestop. You can, you can download Pokemon Go and, and, uh, and play Pokemon Go. My kids tell me we're a Pokestop, so it'll, it should keep you busy through the whole sermon. But um, because I'm likely to struggle with this one. But the reason I start this morning um, with the Irish chalices is because grace, like the Ardog chalice, is hard to define. It's most easily understood when it's juxtaposed against the opposite of grace. When I give you the definition for grace as God's unmerited favorite, it doesn't have teeth. You don't feel it until you see what it looks like against something else, which comes up to our first um, saint that we're going to get into today. And that's Richard Francis Xavier Manning. Anybody know who that is? Richard Francis Xavier Manning. Richard grew up in an Irish Catholic family in Brooklyn, New York. Um, This was kind of in Depression-era America. Um, At a very young age, uh, he's got this, I, I read his memoirs this week, and he's got this kind of formative story where he talked back to his mom, like really hollered at his mom, and she snapped and just apparently beat the tar out of him. And it was his grandma was the one who finally put an end to it. And this is, like, as an old man writing his memoirs, he still tells this story um, very fresh, like it happened yesterday. You can tell it was a formative event in his life. And he said that at that moment, he decided whatever he did with his life, he would make sure and that that never happened again. He would be, in his words, a good boy. I will be a good boy and make sure that I never make mom that angry ever again. So this becomes his kind of life's goal is to be a good boy. So he goes to Catholic high school, um, eventually uh, graduates and enters the Marines where he served as a journalist in Korea. So I guess if you have to go to the Marines, that's the gig, right? Be a journalist. And so he doesn't actually see combat, but he, he's in the Korean War as a journalist. Um, and when he gets back, he uh, immediately enters Catholic seminary. Well, actually, he spends a year in the University of Missouri studying journalism, and then he kind of wants more out of his relationship with God, and he wants to go a little deeper, so he actually drops out of college and goes to seminary to become a priest. And, uh, and part of this is because he's now, in his attempt to become a good boy, he's now started this deep and um, lifelong struggle, because at 16, he was introduced to alcohol. Um, which most of us are like, yeah, that's pretty normal. You get into this. But he was not that guy. He said his, his uh, nickname through all of high school was The Funnel. And uh, he said, the second I took my first drink, I was an alcoholic. He was like, I just had a taste for it, and it, it, was, it was all I did. And so he now lives in this funky duality of I'm, I have to be a good person, and I have to learn how to be a good person, but I really, really like to drink. So he leans into kind of the most extreme relationship with God he can come up with. He decides he's raised Catholic, decides he's going to be a priest, and goes to seminary. And after seminary, he dives into, he joins the Franciscans, which is a, a kind of a group of monks and priests. It's an order within the Catholic Church, and it's a pretty extreme one. And, uh, and so he committed his life to work with the poorest of the poor in the world and becomes a Franciscan priest. And part of becoming a priest in the Catholic Church, especially if you join one of those orders, is to change your name. 
And so um, uh, Richard Manning became Brennan Manning. Anybody ever heard of Brennan Manning? A, little, a few more, I hope. Brennan Manning. Uh, so after Franciscan, his life varied a lot. They moved him around a lot. He was a theological professor for a while. He was a, uh, on a campus. He was a spiritual director in the Franciscan order for other priests where they would come and confess to him and he would um, help and counsel them. And then he moved to Europe and worked amongst the poorest of the poor in Europe. Came back to America and worked in some slums in, in very, very poor post-Depression America and just moved around a lot. And eventually he decided uh, they were moving him back to college. And so he decided to leave the Franciscans for a while and join the Little Brothers of Jesus Christ. It's this, uh, it's this uh, Catholic order in Spain that works with the absolute dirt poor in Spain. And so he worked with them. And this whole time, he's trying to earn this feeling of being a good boy. Like he's trying to earn this, this idea of being worthy of, of, uh, of his relationship with God. And so, while working with the uh, the little brothers of Jesus Christ, um, he does this. It's, it's something they all had to do: the six months of solitude, where he goes to these caves in this uh, desert in Spain. And, so, and when I say cave, it's not like a raw cave. It was just it was a cave, but they had a bed and they had like a little desk, and that was about all you had. You had journaling stuff, and you were just alone. And some of the other monks would come up and leave food outside your cave every single day. And so you didn't even see the monks who were providing you food. You were completely alone every single day in your cave. And so in the six months of solitude, six months of journaling and praying, and he has uh, a revelation of the grace of God. He sees, uh, he said he had a dream of kind of the end time judgment and God allowing, he saw who got to get in. And he saw this parade of the nastiest, gnarliest, Sinners he could imagine, and it just shocked his his uh, idea of what it meant to be good, what it meant to be a good boy, and he he believed that God had showed him the kind of people who, because of the love and grace of Jesus Christ, would make it into heaven. And he said he was forever changed. That was the moment that he experienced what he calls true faith. And he has this thing that's kind of interesting. He said, if you go and ask a hundred Americans or a hundred, you know. Westerners today, what it means to have faith. Most of them would tell you it's to believe in God. Like to believe, that's what it means to have faith, to believe in God. He said, what's ironic is if you go back 150, 200 years, it was taken for granted you believed in God. You had a really hard time finding an atheist. Like, and so believing in God meant almost nothing 200 years ago. Everybody believed in God. The, the bigger question of faith was, um, do you believe God loves you? That was what they would have called faith 200 years ago. Do you believe that the work that Jesus Christ did was for you? Like he said, that was, that, it's a, it's a huge change to us. Now it's like atheist or faith, and that's all we consider. He said, that didn't exist. That's, that's a really, really new concept. Like historically, it was faith meant, do I believe Jesus Christ did this for me? Can I embrace that? Can I believe that Jesus Christ loves me this way? And so man believes that that moment that he, experienced the grace of God in that cave was the moment he had true faith. And he came out um, a completely different person. Uh, he, uh, he realized there was absolutely nothing he could do to improve his standing with God. If the people that God was going to let in were the people he saw in that vision, and he understood, he puts it this way, 
Um, me trying to help my standing with God is like that new plumber that sees Niagara Falls for the very first time and goes, I think I can fix that. Like, like he just, he's like, there's just nothing you can do. Anything you do is going to be a drop in the bucket. So after this revelation, Brennan comes home to America um, and he, he lands a, um, kind of a parish in Biolabatry, Alabama, working with shrimp, shrimpers. And he starts for the very first time uh, to preach the grace of God, to, to tell people that God loves you just like you are, exactly who you are, exactly the way you are, um, and there's nothing you can do to escape the love of God. And uh, they, they took to it. So he's growing this, um, this community. A lot of people who had fallen out of the relationship with the church were coming back, and, he was, and for the first time he's experiencing how powerful this message of the grace of God really is. And in that time, he was having such an effect that the Catholic Church started kind of sending him around to speak um, at these Catholic revivals to just communicate the grace of God to people. And he starts doing this. And so he's now preaching kind of all over the country this message of God's grace, this message of God's unconditional <coughs> love for people. And in that time, he meets um, this woman named Rosalind. And uh, she was in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, I believe. And they have an immediate attraction, basically fall in love at first sight. And so they kind of became pen pals for five years. And anytime he was in Louisiana, they'd go out to dinner. And, uh, and he confessed in his memoirs, and occasionally they would play kissy face, was the way he put it. But uh, he, gets, he, he starts this relationship with this woman. And after five years of kind of writing back and forth uh, and kind of living in and preaching the grace of God, he can... He, can no longer come up with a reason why they should be apart. And, and so he takes a bold move and proposes to her, and they get married. And he's immediately defrocked as a priest, so he loses um, his position uh, because he had taken a vow of chastity. And so he and, uh, uh, he and Rosalind are married now. And the hardest thing <laughs> was that being defrocked meant he immediately lost 100% of his income. Not only the pittance that he got from the brotherhood, but the, the kind of money he would get for speaking everywhere, because the Catholic Church would no longer send him around to preach the grace of God because he was now married. And so uh, they immediately kind of run into hard times uh, because he no longer had an income. And she was a, a single mom, a widow with three daughters. And so he now had a family to provide for and no income. And... Finally, kind of when they were, he said, when they were just at the tail end of their, of their uh, savings, this Assemblies of God pastor who had heard him speak somewhere asked him if he was open to speaking at his church. And uh, Brennan said, I will speak anywhere if you'll pay me. And so he, uh, so he goes to speak for the very first time in front of Protestants. And, um, and he walked into Assemblies of God's church and just preached the grace of God. He said, he said it's all I knew how to preach. And I preached the grace of God, and he said that it just knocked the place over. He said a huge kind of move of God broke out. And he said the, the Assemblies of God pastor came up to him afterwards, like toward the end of the service, and said, Brother, you Catholics do not know how to ask for money. Let me do this for you. And uh, he said, okay. So the Assemblies of God pastor took an offering, and Brendan Manning went home. And this is back in the uh, probably late 80s. Brendan Manning went home with a $15,000 check. Um, off of a free will offering they took for him. And so he admits in his memoirs, he was absolutely right. I have no idea how to ask for money because never again did I ever see a check like that. That dude was awesome. Um, but, but, uh, 
But this started, so immediately upon this, this, this kind of launched Bryn Manning into a new kind of speaking arrangement and, and writing. He started writing full-time. He started writing and speaking all over the place, um, now to pro- Protestant audiences. And everywhere he went, all he preached was the grace of God, the unconditional grace of God, that there's nothing we can do other than just receive it. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Just receive it. And in 1990, um, Manning wrote the, the Ragamuffin Gospel. Has anybody heard of that book? If you've never read the Ragamuffin Gospel, go read it. I mean, I'll wait. Go now. Because it's that good. You want to read that, that book. Um, I read it about once a year. It's amazing. And it kind of launched him into literary fame. It was an immediate bestseller, and it sold millions and millions of copies um, everywhere. And so this... Uh, this kind of officially launched his career, but it also, all this speaking and moving around did something else. It kind of ignited um, his drinking problem again. He had been sober for years and years and years, and something in the traveling uh, kind of set him back to alcohol. But I've never heard anybody, for me, this is 24 years ago, my father-in-law had gone to a uh, kind of recovery-type camp thing for a little bit, and he came back, and and, and I don't know if you just see in my life, I was struggling, but he was like, I think you need these tapes, cassette tapes. Uh, okay, millennials, what cassette tapes are, and they're these, um, no, um, and so he brought me back these four cassette tapes, and it was from a Brennan Manning um, revival thing, and I, listened, I had to have listened to those things a hundred times. Absolutely amazing, this guy could just captivate you with the grace of God and just and just how amazing God's love is. So I was hooked on Brendan Manning immediately uh, before I even knew his book existed. But one of Brendan Manning's favorite Bible verses, and this is what we're going to get in the scripture, um, is from Luke 15. It's a little bit long, but I think it's kind of important that we read it together. So I'm going to read and you can follow along in your Bible or on the screens. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now, before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed his belongings and moved to a distant land. There he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time uh, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded the local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. (laughs) Shoot. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father, I'm going to get this under control said to his son, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine 
was dead and he has now returned to life. He was lost and he's now found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never once uh, refused to do a single thing you told me to. You told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father told him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. And everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate this, this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This is the word of the Lord. The beauty of this story and the reason I believe Jesus used stories so often is because the relatability of the characters. Like there's nothing in dry theology that can capture you like like a character in a story can. When you can put yourself in the place of somebody in a story. And if you're like me, you can relate to the younger brother. If you've really blown it, if you found yourself in the pig pen and asking yourself, what am I doing? Why am I living like this? Why did I leave? What what is going on with me? If you've ever experienced that, found yourself, just woke up one day like, what am I even doing? Then you get the younger son. This parable is for you. Don't overthink it. Keep it simple. Don't get too deep. Don't, don't, don't. Your mind will say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, ignore the yeah, but. Keep it simple. When you return, God runs to you. Period. He runs to you. That's the point of the story. Don't make it harder than that. Don't make it more complicated. You can try to get your speech out. You can try to tell him what you've been planning to tell him. He's going to cut you off every time and say, no, no, no. Clean him up. Get him dressed. We're throwing a party. Don't make it more difficult than that. He sprints to you and throws you a party. What I love about this parable is some church people have trouble relating to it. We all try to squeeze ourselves into that younger brother role. Like we, we try to imagine the, you know, we try to imagine the depth of our, you know, sins that we have committed and, and say, yeah, I guess those are bad enough that I can feel like the inner. We try to cram ourselves in, but that doesn't fit for everybody. Some of us are older brothers. Some of us grew up in church and we can't remember a day when we just went on a rebellious streak. My wife's one of those. She was like, I can't really remember a day when I didn't believe in Jesus. And, I mean, not that she doesn't have sin, but she's like, I, I just don't relate to the younger brothers. I've never just gone wild like that. What I love about this story is, is if you're an older brother, if that is you, and you, and you catch yourself sometimes getting frustrated with those stories of the people who have the wild testimonies, and I was doing this and I was doing that, and you're like, raised in a Christian home, never really went crazy. This story is also for you, because what happens when the younger brother goes out is the father comes to him. His father came out to him, 
in the middle of the party, left the party, the host abandoned the party and goes to the brother and begs him. He replied. In a Jewish context, the father did not beg the sons. He does not go to the son and, and say, please, please come in. Please get this. He begged him. And not only does he beg him, but in the middle of the party, when he's chasing down his other son, he's already chased down one son. He's chasing down the other son. Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. And everything I have is yours. Don't overthink it. If you're the older brother, everything he has is yours. That's still grace. That is still grace. There's grace for both in this story. Don't compare. Just let those words wash over you. Everything I have is yours. If I'm honest, I've played the older brother. Usually when I'm dealing with my kids, why is it so hard to show grace to your kids? Anybody? I'm asking for real. I need real advice. I, if you guys gave me this, I'd have done terrible things. I would be nothing but grace. And if my kids did that, I'd be like, get out of my house. No. Let me not have that. But it's so hard to show grace to your kids. I can get really self-righteous when my kids are being turned. But honestly, I play the older brother all the time. I look at other churches and I see things they're doing wrong and I'm like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to be better than that. I stand over here being the older brother. I'm both brothers. I'm both brothers. I can relate to both. I can be the judgmental guy on one day and I can be the turd who can't seem to get out of the pig pen the next day. And I'll say, if you're totally lost today, if, if if you can't figure out what you're doing, God is running to you. He's just running to you. All you got to do is turn. And he takes off sprinting. And if you're faithful today, and you're, you're doing good, and you pretty much always have been, God is still coming to you. God is still running to you. You are his beloved. But here's the big question. If you get a fattened calf party when you wander, and you get all the abundance of God when you stay, then please tell me how your behavior can have anything to do with the love of God for you. If you fall away and he throws you a party the second you turn back at him, and if you stay, he says, you've always been with me. All I have is yours. then I don't know what we can do to mess that up. We just turn. That's all we do is turn. Here's what I love about Brent Manning and why I included him in our Saint series. Because I, I don't know anybody who plays both brothers as well as Brent Manning. Manning committed his life to a ministry so extreme that I'm like embarrassed by my little commitment. Like, this dude went to the poorest of the poor, you know, six months of solitude. I think I told you guys last week, I'm trying to get up to like five minutes of total silence, and I start getting itchy. Like, I got to hear noise. Like, six months of solitude. Like, this guy committed his whole life to ministry. 
Everywhere he traveled, he worked blue-collar work with his body to provide not only for himself, but usually for some of the brothers who were with him. And he always gave to widows and orphans wherever he went. He found widows and orphans and helped take care of them in whatever town and whatever place in the world he was. But he also struggled with addiction his entire life. Anyone who's ever conquered something powerful in your life knows how easy it can be to become judgmental once you do conquer it. You see somebody else struggling and you're like, come on, I did it. Pick yourself up. Why are you still struggling with that? He never did that. He was a true inspiration of, of like passion and compassion in Christianity. But that same saint would go on preaching arrangements and when he would forget to check in, his friends would have to track him down. And more than once they found him laying in a pool of his own vomit in a cheap hotel somewhere. And they would clean him up and get him back into a rehab. Three or four weeks later, a couple months later, he'd come back out and start preaching again. He was both brothers. Like, I love Mother Teresa. I'm inspired by Mother Teresa. But I don't get Mother Teresa. I, like, I can't relate to that level of... I'm not that good. I'm just not. I love air conditioning. And there's just no way I'm living in Calcutta, no matter how much I love Jesus. Like, I can't relate to that level of commitment. I have compassion for a lot of my homeless friends that I feel blessed to have gotten to meet. And, and, I, and I'm, I feel like my life is enriched by getting to know them. But I can't really relate to them either. Like, there's part of me that's like, even, even when we're down... We went down to the homeless camps and we were getting this one homeless gal out of there that was in trouble and we were taking blankets to the other homeless guys and one of the old guys who was in his 60s, his tent had gotten rolled, so we were getting him a new tent and we were setting them all up. And even in the midst of helping them and, and seeing their struggles, what they were with, there was part of me that was like, come on, you guys aren't helping yourselves out of me. Like, because they were, they built an amazing camp. I'm like, you can obviously work, get a job. Like, you drug all this material in here and built real houses. There's these little houses, and I'm sure 100% of the material was stolen. I don't know where they stole it from, but, like, you can obviously work, work. Like, and that's, you know, that's in the back of my head, nagging at me. I'm trying not to be that way, but it's in there. I can't really fully relate, even though, you know, I'm trying to help. But Brennan Manning, I get. Brennan Manning, I can get. That guy who's like, I'm a saint one day and a sinner the next. And I'm, I'm trying hard, but I fail. And I fall, and I pick myself up, and I, and I keep preaching it. And the first thing I think is most beautiful for Brennan Manning is from the same guy, I can be inspired to be better and inspired to know how quickly you can slip. He's the perfect cautionary tale for me. Because I see this guy who, threw, who went all in, but he also... Serves as a warning to how slippery that slope can be. Anybody can fall. Anybody can fall. But the second thing I love is that Brennan Manning, for his entire career, from the moment he walked out of that cave in Spain, was consistent to one message. And that was the grace of God. He was consistent to preach the grace of God. Everywhere he went, he said, God loves you. And grace is a gift that you can do nothing but receive. That was his message everywhere he went. God loves you, and grace is a gift that you can do nothing but receive. You can't earn it. You can't 
trade for it. You can't. There's nothing you can offer. You just receive it. Period. When he was on top, when he was doing well, when he was sober, and he was preaching to huge crowds, he knew it was the grace of God to put him there. And when he fell and he was disgusting, he knew that it was only by the grace of God he could stand. Brandon Manning knew, more than anyone else I've ever read or listened to, that the message was the message, period. And he was just the messenger. Like, that sounds simple, but it's, it's, it's not. We have a tendency, even ourselves, to tangle up the message and the messenger. And he knew that the message is true whether I can live it or not. The message is true when I'm sober and doing great. And the message is still true when I fall because I am not the message. The message is the grace of Jesus Christ. The message is that Jesus Christ loves you and grace is a gift that you cannot earn, you can only receive. Most of us, most of us will vary. We'll either desperately want and need and, and cling to grace when we're struggling, and then as soon as we're doing well, you know, it comes down to some good hard work. You just gotta, you gotta lean into that thing and try a little bit. You know, then, then we want to to put it up to some effort. You know, when we're doing well, or we're the other way. And some of us, when we're doing poorly, God hates me. I can't. You know, we can't we can't find the grace of God. We can't get on our feet. And then when we're doing well, then it's like, well, yeah, it's all grace, it's all grace, you know, blah, 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 until we fall. And then we're like, you know, I'm terrible, God doesn't love me anymore. It's hard. Consistency is hard in a, in a message like grace. It's hard. Because you've got to know, you got to know there was times when he, he wondered, am I just preaching this because I'm an alcoholic and I need it? Like, you got to know it's hard. It's hard to believe that this is the truth, even if I'm doing a terrible job of living it. Manning's final book had to be dictated uh, to somebody. He had a co-author who he kind of dictated most of it to because alcohol had damaged his brain too much to allow him to even really type anymore. And the title was Always Grace. I read the book twice this week and I reread Ragamuffin Gospel once. But that's my prayer. When we reach the end of our course, when we reach the end of our journey, um, if I'm going to die, I want to die realizing that all is grace. That all is grace. So how do we respond to this? Grace is hard to define. It's hard to put such a beautiful and powerful uh, concept into a definition, like a clean definition. God's unmerited favor. I mean, it's, it falls flat. Sometimes the easiest way to see it is to compare it to a lack of grace. <coughs> kind of like you can only truly comprehend the beauty that was contained in the Arda chalice if you knew the horror of living under the Gunstrup cauldron. I think this is where Brendan Manning's work stands out. A man who's still in his old age trying to be a good boy for his mom. Trying so hard he becomes a priest. He volunteered to serve in horribly poor villages all over the world. And he gets a glimpse of grace. I think only when you see somebody who is striving to earn his goodness that hard 
find grace? Do we truly see how powerful grace is? I think of Luther crawling up the, the stairs on his knees and just meditating on the phrase, the just shall live by faith. And coming to the conclusion, if the just shall live by faith, why am I doing this? Or even Paul, a zealot who was trying to get rid of Christians, who was trying to clear, clear them off the map, getting knocked off his donkey and confronted with the grace of God. Like It's always most powerful when it's those, those people who want to fight it, those people who, who want to push back against grace. No, it cannot be that easy. No, it cannot be that easy. And then they get overwhelmed by the grace of God and, and you see just how powerful it is. Something about the vengeful God that, that created the backdrop for these men shows such a beautiful comp- contrast to the gospel of grace. So my simple encouragement this week and this morning really is wherever you are, turn toward Jesus. Just whatever you're doing, whatever you're striving for to, to to make God happy, whatever shame you're carrying, whatever you know struggle that with your own worth and value, lay that down and turn toward Jesus. They say that to be known but not loved is our greatest fear, and to be loved and not known is cheap. But to be fully known and fully loved is the cry of every heart. That's, that's what we want. We want someone who knows us, the good, the bad, the ugly, the dark corners, the things we don't tell anybody about. Somebody who knows that stuff and still loves us. And that's what Jesus Christ does. All the things you're hiding, all the... <laughs> Shoot. All the shame we carry. He knows about that. There's nothing hidden from him. He still stands there and says, just come. I will. All you got to do is start. I will sprint. I'll do the running. So as we come to the table tonight, see it as an act of coming, just turning. Don't just come and dunk bread and juice and but see this as I'm turning to the Father through the broken body and poured out blood of my Savior, I'm coming to the Father. And He will run and meet you. He will sprint and meet you. He, he can't wait to see you on the horizon, just clearing the hill. He will meet you. Wherever you are today, turn to Him. I'm going to close with a couple quotes. In his most popular book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Manning opens with this. The Ragamuffin Gospel was written with a specific, specific audience in mind. It's not for the super spiritual. It's not for the muscular Christians who have made John Wayne, not Jesus, their hero. It's not for the academic who has imprisoned Jesus in ivory towers of exegesis. It's not for the noisy, feel-good folks who manipulate Christianity into a naked appeal to emotion. It's not for the hooded mystics who want a little magic in their religion. It's not for the Alleluia Christians who live only on the mountaintops and never visit the Valley of Desolation. It's not for the fearless or the tearless. It's not for the red-hot zealots who boast with the rich young ruler of the Gospels, all these commandments I've kept since my youth. 
It's not for the complacent who hoist over their shoulders a tote bag of honors, diplomas, and good works, actually believing that they've made it. It's not for the legalist who would rather surrender control of their souls to rules than run the risk of actually living in union with Jesus. If anyone is still reading along, the ragamuffin gospel was written for the bedraggled, the beat up, and the burned out. for the solely burdened who are still shifting their heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. It's for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together but who are too proud to take a handout of amazing grace. It's for the inconsistent, unsteady disciple whose cheese is falling off their cracker. It's for the poor, the weak, and the sinful with hereditary faults and limited talents. It's for the earthen vessels who shuffle along on the feet of clay. It's for the bent and the bruised who feel like their life is a grave disappointment to God. It's for the smart people who know they're stupid and the honest disciple who's willing to admit that they're a scallywag. The ragamuffin gospel is a book I wrote for myself and anyone who has grown weary and discouraged along the way. Anybody fall into that? If you hear yourself in that list, the gospel of grace is for you. Philip Yancey, in the beginning of the book All is Grace, wrote this about Brandon Manning. As you read this memoir, you may be tempted to think, as I was, oh, what might have been if Brennan hadn't given in to drink. I urge you to reframe that thought. Turn it into, oh, what might have been if Brennan hadn't discovered grace. For every single regret you have, for every what might have my life have been if not for flip that around. What would your life look like if you didn't find grace? What would all of that stuff done to you if you hadn't found grace? How bad could it have gotten if you hadn't found grace? Let's go to the table.